You know, I love uh, watching young godly men who are in love with young godly women. Because they will do unimaginable feats of kindness, extravagance, and selfless abandon of time, resources, and energy to win fair maiden's heart. And I love seeing the (gasps) response of fair maiden. (gasps) You brought me flowers. You made that for me. <gasps> you drove all night just to see me. I love that. And young man, men do that. It's good. Win that girl. Well, today, as we continue in our alternate series, Encounters with Jesus we are going to see five responses from people who encountered Jesus doing the unimaginable. Now, we see these responses in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. So I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in the rack in front of you. And I believe in that Bible, it's actually on page 898. should be somewhere close to page 898. Now, if you are a regular here, I think you're already starting to realize that something's a little different about the morning. Uh, You're used to having an outline where you fill in the blanks, and there's typically slides behind me, and uh, they give you the answers. Well, today... Uh, We're going to do things a little bit different. Today, I have simply provided you with a Bible and a blank sheet of paper, which is in your worship folder if you want to take that out. And my prayer is this. When God speaks to your heart, would you just write down what he says? So let's read, beginning at John chapter 12, the first verse. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you guide us by your Holy Spirit this morning, that we would be spiritually awakened, 
that our response to your gospel in Jesus would be appropriate, extravagant, and transforming to our own souls, as well as to those who might observe us this day. Thank you in advance. Amen. Well, in verse 1, the stage is set. Jesus has done the unimaginable. And it is no mere flower, handcraft, or late-night driving escapade. Jesus raised the dead. Now, that history takes place one chapter earlier in chapter 11. And there are several details there in that story that I find significant for us to understand Uh, to appreciate the responses that we see here in chapter 12. And so over in chapter 11 at verse 3, it says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, uh, Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, and it's not by telephone. Uh, Somebody had to walk, and I'm sure they were walking rather quickly to try to get to Jesus in time. And they said, sent words saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That would be Lazarus, their brother, for Jesus had relationship with them. Then in verse 6, it says this. So when he, Jesus, heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The first significant detail is this. Jesus did not come when he was called. Jesus did not come when he was called. And the resulting heartache was a young brother dead and buried with Jesus nowhere to be found. Then in chapter 11 at verse 35, we read this. Jesus wept. You see, when Jesus did arrive, he was confronted by Martha, who said to him in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then in verse 32, he's confronted by Mary, who falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And there in the midst of that chaos and that grief of death, Verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And the second significant detail is this. Jesus wept. Now, in just ten verses, just ten short verses, We're going to see Jesus do the unimaginable and raise the dead. But we dare not skim over this scene of heart-wrenching grief. You see, in Mary and Martha's eyes, Jesus has already done the unimaginable. He did not come when they called. Can you imagine the tension that must have risen in that place when Mary and Martha began questioning his disciples, 
what, what took you so long? We sent a runner days ago. What kept you from coming? And can you imagine the confusion in the heart of the disciples as the what-ifs are running through their mind? What if we'd been here? What if we hadn't waited two days? What if we'd hurried? I mean, in that confusion of all those what-ifs that run through our minds in the midst of things going south when maybe we could have done something about it, they would have been left just to shrug their shoulders and report to Mary and Martha nothing. Absolutely nothing kept us from being here. Jesus just said, let's hang out for a couple days. Nothing? Are you serious? The anger, right? The resentment? The feelings of abandonment? I think we get a glimpse of this from verse 20 in chapter 11. There it says that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, this is purely speculation on my part, but I think I could go to this place. I think I would get this. Jesus, you said you love us. We ate in, you ate in our home with us earlier. We're special to you. And you're going all over the country healing all these people you don't even know. And we sent word. And you just waited? You didn't come when we called? And now you're here? Oh, yeah, and you got your entourage. Son of God, look at everybody. Yeah, thank you very much. I think I'll just stay here in the house by myself. I mean, I'd get that. I've done that. Jesus could have come, but he did not come. He did what was unimaginable. And there in that pain, in that sorrow, in that grief, Jesus does something else that's unimaginable. The unique, one of a kind, the only Son of God empathizes with these people and he cries with them. I mean, just as Jesus could have come but didn't, now Jesus could say, Hey, I am the Son of God, and I am here. Buck up. Quit your sniveling. Show a little faith in the one you profess to believe in. But he didn't. Instead, he takes on their pain. 
He receives their confrontations. He receives their cold shoulder. Anything that a wounded spirit will express, however it is expressed, Jesus receives it. Because Jesus, in the midst of their pain, he's Jesus. He is Jesus, the Son of God. He is Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead. He is Jesus, the exact representation of God. He is Jesus. God made flesh. And he is gracious and compassionate. And he weeps with those who weep. And again, Jesus does the unimaginable. And so we find Mary and Martha in, a, in the very place where we at times find ourselves with Jesus at our side in the midst of our trouble not answering the way we want. And guys, you know as well as I do that it is no fun to live in that tension. But there, but there is a profound parallel between their story and our story. For once again, Jesus does the unimaginable. In verses 43 and 44 of chapter 11, we read that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus raised the dead. He raised the dead. It it is unimaginable. And in his discourse with Martha proceeding, Jesus gives you and I an unimaginable hope. Our hope that we experience amidst the grief is not heaven on earth. The hope is Jesus at our side who has conquered sin and death and who has promised that he will resurrect those who believe in him eternally, into a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more death or crying or mourning or pain. That is our hope. 
Lazarus was raised from the dead temporarily to point us to a future day of resurrection for eternity. One day, one day, all who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to lead them through this life of sin and death will be raised from the dead eternally. It is unimaginable. So having experienced Jesus doing the unimaginable, We find five responses here in John chapter 12. There are three positive, and there are two negative. Now, Mary's response is of extravagant worship, and it's basically the centerpiece of John chapter 12. But I want to save that for the end, which means I may have to save it for next week. So allow me to begin with the negative responses. The first is Judas. Judas. Judas, 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 Judas. Judas. That's crazy. It's just crazy, you guys. Look at this. Lazarus is alive. He's seated in the very room where they are enjoying dinner together. Mary is worshiping the one who brought him back from the dead. Her brother was dead. She had emoted to Jesus and Jesus, in an extravagant act of grace, gave him back to her. And she responds with extravagant worship. And Judas complains. Not because he cared for the poor, but because he idolized money. It is an absolutely absurd contrast. Judas would rather dip from 300 denarii than allow the one who raised the dead to lead him to a future reward. What is wrong with you? And there there are so many cautions that we need to see from Judas' response. The first caution we find stated plainly in 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 10, where it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Guys, don't let money be the most important thing in your life. Yes, Work hard. Yes, earn money. And I would encourage you to earn a lot of it. Steward it well. 
but don't crave money. Be generous with money. Give it away. If you must downsize, do whatever it takes to not be enslaved to that craving love of having more and more and more money to lavish on yourself. It will deal you a crushing blow. Now the second caution is a little more subtle. We find it in verse 6 of our passage, chapter 12, where it says in the middle, having charge of the money bag. Referring to Judas. Do you realize that Jesus allowed Judas to have charge of the money bag? The very thing Judas craved, the very thing Judas loved, Jesus allowed. Oh boy, that's a brain twister. I wouldn't do it that way. Guys, we live in a decadent society. If you want it, you can have it. You don't even have to be able to afford it. Whatever you want, it's yours. The American dream has skewed from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to a casting off of restraint and the pursuit of immorality. And in that worldview soup that we live in, we create a false dichotomy that God approves because God allows. He does not. That is not the case. I think we get a picture of this in James chapter 1 at verse 2. Where James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Guys, Jesus allows trials of various kinds, and we are told to count those trials as joy. As a joy. Now, it does not say to enjoy those trials. It doesn't tell us to embrace them and just live out the fun of them. Or somehow, if it's not kind of a sinful, fun thing, but it's something that's painful and hard to somehow put on this false mask of, oh, I'm just having a good time for Jesus here. I mean, he's not talking about that kind of embrace. He says, count them as a joy because they have the potential for a very positive result. It it has been uh, my pleasure to see young men go into the armed services. Uh, One specifically, my eldest son, who was at Coast Guard basic training last summer. And when guys are headed to that, they they kind of looking forward to it because they're going to get stronger. They're going to get all that military thing that they're going to get. And it's amazing because 
when they step out of basic training, they are ripped. I haven't seen a man so strong as a man who steps out of basic training. And man, it's fun. The body you always wanted, they got. It is amazing. And as they tell their stories, it, it, it's, it's this joy. The, these are the pendants that we earned. These are the number of push-ups we can do. I, I was talking with my son uh, a few months ago, and we were just kind of sharing stories about basic training. And I asked him, I said, so having gone through that, having experienced all the good times that you experienced amidst that crazy event, and, and receiving what you received, w- would you do it again? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. You see, the trial is not, <laughs> it's not the thing we enjoy. It's the result that we enjoy. And as Christians in our spiritual life, they work the same way. We can take joy in them because they have the potential for a very positive result. The increase of Christ-likeness. Trials bring about an increase of love, an increase of joy, an increase of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Do you realize that you will never be more patient than you are right now until you experience a trial where you're tempted to be impatient? If you grew up, if you grew up in a house where where uh, you just kind of go angry, uh, kind of rage, you're kind of harsh. That's kind of how you do it. Do you realize until you're tempted to do that again, you're not going to become a more gentle person? Everything that you aspire to in the character of Christ will not just magically happen to you. It will come through the perseverance of trials. But you do realize, of course, that there is another possible outcome because of those trials. And you realize that that outcome is not a steadfastness. It is a disloyalty. It is traitorous. It is Judas. The very thing that can pull you close to the Savior is the very thing that can separate you the farthest from Him. The third caution. Greed is often masked by altruism. We say we will use it for good deeds. We tell ourselves, as Pastor Scott said last week, we tell ourselves rational lies every time we choose to complain. Oh, yeah, we rationalize. 
but they are rational lies. And so our complaints are couched as prayer requests. Our complaints are couched as helpful criticism. Our complaints are couched as just getting it off my chest. That somehow pursuing my greedy self-interest is in everybody else's best interests. My friends, be careful. Be very careful. For that is not the example of Jesus who emptied himself stepping out of the throne room of heaven at the right hand of God and entered humanity to rescue you. He did not complain. The fourth caution, expecting Jesus to enable our idolatry will result in unimaginable frustration and disillusionment. All of the disciples got on board with Jesus because Jesus was offering them something really good. And after Jesus had died and been raised from the dead, he had a conversation with a couple of guys walking to a town called Emmaus. They didn't realize who he was. And those two guys said this about Jesus. They said, We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see, as they heard Jesus' promises, they wrapped it all up in their current situation. Everything they had in mind was related to the current socioeconomic, political state that they were a part of. God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and later to King David, it all revolved around a land, a king, and prosperity. And so they were ready for this Roman occupier to be gone. And so Jesus' claim to be God's Messiah meant a new day in their minds that would look a lot like a day long since past. A day of conquest and power and wealth. And and yeah, I mean, Jesus was, you know, demonstrating power. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. But uh, he was missing the sword And there was no conquest. (laughs) And the money bag was not filling up. Judas was not getting what he had signed up for with this Jesus. And when Jesus rebuked him, it was the last straw. It was the last straw. And we read about it in the parallel passage of John chapter 12 and Matthew Uh, chapter 26, immediately following Jesus' rebuke, uh, it says in Matthew 26 at verses 14 through 16, Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? 
and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Jesus' rebuke was the straw that broke the camel's back. And with jaw-clenching frustration, Judas thought, I have had it with this Jesus. And in mind-altering disillusionment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Which brings us to a fifth caution. Our complaints with Jesus will prompt us to settle for far less than we are complaining about. Judas wanted 300 denarii in the bag. He settled for 30 pieces of silver, 30 shekels. That's approximately 100 denarii. Basically, he settled for a third of what the ointment was worth. And when everything is said and done, he will take that 30 pieces and he will throw it back into the temple and all he will have to his name is self, self-loathing disillusionment that leads him to take his very life. Guys, a complaining response to Jesus, unimaginable displays of glory in our lives, is not a good response. Jesus has done the unimaginable for you. He died on a cross, the death you deserved to pay the penalty that you could never pay. And Jesus is in the process of doing unimaginable things in your life. Those things may very well feel like not coming when he's called. But he is ready and willing to weep with those who weep. We're going to look at the other responses next week. But right now I would exhort you in closing with Philippians chapter 2 verse 14. Do all things without complaining or arguing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the contrast between you and Judas is indescribable. For you never complained to enter our world and give to us grace after grace after grace. And yet Judas complained as you sought to lead him to an eternal reward. Jesus, it's easy to pick on Judas and to blame him. 
But God, I know there are days in my own heart when I think the same way. Jesus, I'm sorry. Thank you for loving me even while I'm still a sinner. And thank you for dying in my place that one day I can look forward to the unimaginable of being resurrected to your side forever. If you are here this morning and you have never said, Jesus, I need you, would you, would you embrace him right now? He hears your thoughts and he would hear your simple prayer of Jesus, I need you to lead my life. Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Would you come in to my heart and change me and make me like you that I might live with you now and forevermore?